Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Lift up your hearts. Father, we are gathered to worship you now, this morning, but we confess that the cares of this world are heavy and distracting. Some of them are very important, but you command us to set this time apart to worship you. Some of our cares are very difficult, but we've done everything we can, and you command us to trust you with them now. Some of our cares are in the future. We're tempted to worry about what will happen tomorrow or the next day or next year, but you insist that we give them to you now. And some of our cares are not at all important, but we often think that we are very important. And so we imagine that our petty cares must also be important. Father, you know all these things and much more about us, and you are patient and kind with us in all our weakness. But you are all goodness, all majesty, all beauty, all power, all holiness, all perfection. And so we fix our eyes on you now. We cast our cares upon you because you care for us. We cannot add one thing by worrying. We cannot fix one thing by clinging to our trouble. You are the creator of the heavens and the earth. By your word, all things exist. You're telling the epic story of every molecule, every dust particle. You know the number of hairs on our head this very minute. And what is man? But you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit us. So Lord, turn our hearts so that they will be turned toward you. Lift up our hearts and they will be lifted up to you. We ask in Jesus' name who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, Amen. Amen. We serve a kind father, not a cruel master. And at the center of his kindness is his willingness to forgive our sins and let us start over again and again and again. When it comes to cruelty and slavery, we are the cruel slavers. We are the ones that wallow in our own filth. We put up with sin, letting it gnaw on our legs, stealing our joy, sucking life from us. We are the ones pulling the noose tight around our own necks. Maybe it's in your home, a slow accumulation of petty grievances, bickering, bad attitudes, criticism, worry, Maybe it's between you and your wife, your husband, your children, your siblings, your roommates, 
It may not be obvious on the outside, but everyone is just a little on edge. And maybe you tell yourself, this is just life. You say you're just really tired. There's just a lot of people in this house. It's noisy. You're hungry. This is just the way I am. We can't really stop being this way. We're only human. Everyone is like this sometimes. But don't you see, you're being the cruel slaver. You are the one saying, I just can't leave this prison cell. I just can't be free of my sin. We just can't overcome our past, our failures, our habits. But the kindness of God is stronger than all our cruelty. Your father, your kind father says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool, Isaiah 118. Your kind father says, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed, John 8, 36. Your father says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Hebrews 8:12. God is not a cruel master. He is a kind father. And we know this centrally because he sent his only son to die for our sins. So start over now. Get clean now. And then go from this place and put things right. Have a family meeting. Talk to your wife. Talk to your husband, your kids, your roommates. Look each other in the eye. Ask for forgiveness. Forgive one another from the heart. Ask the Lord to let you begin again. It really is that simple. You can start over again. For with God there is forgiveness, and with him abundant redemption. So as we prepare to confess our sins together this morning, please turn to the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit found on page 414. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Hebrews 4 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, we confess that we are the cause of so many of our troubles. We imagine that it is everything and everyone around us except for us. We let bitterness gnaw at us. We cultivate worry. We welcome fear and hurt into our hearts. We dress up anger and lust and envy, and we call them concerns for justice and beauty. We put up with petty bickering and fussing and whining, and then we blame other people for what we have failed to address. We blow up in frustration, thinking we are justified, when we have been serving our own flesh in laziness and cowardice all the while. Father, we come boldly to your throne of grace this morning to ask you to please forgive us. We are so silly in our sin, and you see it all. 
we are bold to ask for your mercy to cover us again. You give us, we pray that you would give us grace to humbly receive your grace and walk in your grace. Thank you that we can start over again and that you are glad to leave our past behind for the sake of Jesus. Father, we know that if we regard any sin in our own hearts, this prayer will be ineffectual. So hear us now as we silently confess our own individual sins to you. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 11 says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. The root of Jesse did come, and he has become the banner for all people. All the nations are seeking him because at the center of his glorious rest is the promise of forgiveness, the promise of starting all over. Therefore, I declare to you, your sins are forgiven through Christ. Matthew 26, 36 through 42. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the blessing of your word, but we thank you far more for the blessing of the reality behind it, for your son, for this scene that he lived for us and for you. I pray that you'd open our eyes today and feed us with your word. In your son's name, amen. amen. Okay. I'm going to jump around a little bit today. But because I'm all about your comfort, I let you sit down first. So hopping to, to uh, the next gospel account of the same scene. Well, actually, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to hit Mark and then Luke. Mark 14, 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then if we bounce over to Luke 22, twenty-eight 
2239. I think. Yes. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So, in the garden, we see Jesus at his most raw. And for so many reasons, his agony in this scene has been one of the most poured over scenes in scripture by the devout through centuries. It's wedged between the Last Supper and Judas's betrayal. And the scene shows us Jesus in a different mode, in a different way than we're used to seeing him. Through the Gospels, when the Pharisees are trying to trap him, or people are coming at him, or he's healing people. And even later, when he's standing in front of Pontius Pilate, this is a unique look at our Savior. Yes, we've seen Jesus emotional elsewhere. We see him emotional in John 11, uh, in that famously short verse, Jesus wept. But we have a lot more visceral description here, and there's a lot more that's gone into it. And of course, there's a lot of discussion over why Jesus weeps over Lazarus. People watching said he must have loved him a lot. Others have pointed out that what he does there for Lazarus is actually not a kindness to Lazarus. Like he's bringing Lazarus back from the dead to die again. Uh, Many people have speculated that that's why he's weeping that he's calling Lazarus from paradise in order to come back here and be mortal again and go through it one more time. But here in his own agony, we see something unique. Now, at the end of this this, uh, section with, in Luke, I actually skipped a verse. I'm going to finish here because I'm going to refer to it later. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now, when we think about this scene, there's a a few things pop into our minds really quickly. One of them is tears like blood. Tears like blood is sort of been mythologized. Whether he was weeping blood, as some people try to maintain, or the teardrops fell like blood, that's one of the things that pops out for us. Another thing is the fact that the disciples slept. This is one of the passages that makes us think very little of those disciples. You know, we think, man, come on, I would have I done so much better uh, if I'd been there. And I think it was actually quite kind of Luke to include what I almost left out in the reading. He found them sleeping from sorrow. They weren't just lazy. They were basically in shock. There's some, there's some shock going on. They're sleeping from sorrow. They're overwhelmed. It's not working. Now, I have become very fond of this passage. I was always fond of this passage. But over the last couple of years, it's taken on a new texture for me because two years ago when I got a phone call on a Friday at a 4, p, you know, 4 p.m. while we were on the road, uh, Heather and I had loaded up our kids and driven to Utah to visit some family. And at 4 p.m., actually, we, we entered into cell coverage 
and suddenly my phone was vibrating repeatedly with voicemails that I'd missed, and a doctor got through at four and said, you've got a very large brain tumor. Uh, but I have no idea about these things. I don't know what they mean. I don't know anything about them. So that's all. Happy weekend. It's big. We'll talk Monday. <laughs> Some version of that. Uh, then we were busy with family, and Heather, Heather kept asking me what the phone call had been, and I didn't tell her. I was like, oh, we'll talk later. And then eventually we did talk later, and I told her, and I figured, okay, we're going to have a long night of prayer here tonight. And then as soon as I started praying, I made it about a sentence in before Heather fell asleep. <laughs> Just out cold, deep, beautiful sleep. And I sat there feeling a little more connected to this passage. <laughs> and then the next night, next day, we were busy with family all day again. Didn't get a chance to talk about it. It was still just sitting there in my head. But it had been there for years. It was fine. Uh, and we tried again the next night where we were going to pray together while we waited for more explanation from a doctor. And again, I barely got through Father in Heaven before she was unconscious. And she had two beautiful nights sleep, which incidentally was a great answer to prayer. This is an answer to prayer I hadn't even prayed yet. Uh, and since then, she's been the one awake when I am inappropriately asleep or inappropriately awake and she's asleep, however, however the case may be. So she's, she's more than done her duty. But after those, those first two nights, I felt like, man, those disciples, I, I kind of get it a little bit. But the thing is, they're sleeping from sorrow. And... Jesus is on their case, as he should be. He's on their case, but there's, there's a reason that they're not up to this. It's a little bit beyond them. And he's even sent an angel to comfort him. So in Luke, we have an angel, we have tears like blood, and we have the disciples' sleep explained slightly. If we go back to Matthew, it's really, it, it really centers in on Christ's pleading if we, if we bounce through, we see in, in these three accounts, John actually skips over it pretty rapidly. There's a long transcript of Christ's prayers that run up to it, and then we go right to the betrayal. So we have the Lord's Supper, then a bunch of prayer transcripts, which are amazing, and some of which we'll hit in a minute, and then we move to the betrayal. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we learn how desperate Christ was. We learn that he says uh, specifically to his father, with you all things are possible. You can take this from me. You can take this from me, all things are possible. And then we learn also that he needed angelic assistance. So there's, there are things here for us to learn. There are a lot of things here for us to learn. Now we see first, Jesus asked his father to do something and we see his father deny him. It cannot be disputed that God said no. Christ asked him to take the cup from him, and his father said, no. And that is striking. It's highly striking. This is the incarnate word, the one through whom all things were made. This God-man was the linchpin of all history, the one whom the prophets foretold, the lamb to unmake and remake the world. And in his most desperate prayer, his father said, no. There are lessons here. That's one of the big ones. And I'm going to go through and just draw out some of them. Not all of them. 
Faithful pastors have been thundering on these verses since they were still freshly written history, and faithful ministers will be thundering on these passages still until the very end of history. And there will be new things for us to learn from Christ's anguish and courage and sacrifice when this world is in its last week. There's a lot here for us to learn, but there are some things that's so easy for us to miss. There are new things now that we can pick up on if we, if we pay just a little bit more attention than we're used to, if we get past the sleeping disciples and the tears like blood. And that first one, the first big lesson, is that God says no. God is speaking all around us all the time. Crafting every worrying atom and every scene in which we exist, every one of our moments is divinely bespoke. And when we cry out to him, he hears us. He does hear us. He answers prayers, but he does not always say yes. In some of my most uh, passionate prayers, he talks about completely different things. I might have something really burdening me, and I could, I could take it to God, and his response could be a cat chasing a squirrel outside the window. Like, this is, this is happening around me. Animal kingdom swirling, leaves growing, the star beating down on this earth, some African tortoises in my side yard at least, grazing on clover. He's doing all of this all the time. He's speaking it, he's making it, and I can want him to stay on topic, and I can want him to say yes to whatever it is I'm asking, a new car, a new truck, a lake house, Powerball, we tend to go those directions. We tend to ask for those kinds of things. I could want to have a very serious conversation about my career, and he's busy with the squirrels. He also can clearly say no. He does all the time. He answers prayers, he hears prayers, but he doesn't always say what we want him to say. We are often focused on physical comforts, comforts which, incidentally, he invented for us. So if you prayed for my father's frequent analogy of an ice cream truck, you know, to show up and give you all the ice cream inside, well, God did invent ice cream. He is the one who invented the vanilla bean. He is the one who invented the cows with that weird sack of liquid underneath them that some brave, intrepid individual thought he should squeeze in a bucket and then let it sit and then skim off the top and then get some ice and get that vanilla bean and then stir rapidly for a very, very long time. God invented ice cream, it's awesome, it's amazing. And yet if you pray for lifetime supply of it right now, you're likely to get a no. We tend to pray for comforts, but our comfort is not our highest and best use. When there is an image of God created, a being made in his image, who is here living for a limited amount of time with a limited number of heartbeats, that person, you, me, we have a highest and best use. And it is not our own painlessness. It is not our own comfort. It is not the maximum number of peanut butter M&Ms that we can eat, even though God invented peanut butter and chocolate and it's amazing. That's not what we're here for. We're not here for our own comfort. The father denied Christ. 
And he denied Christ here because his purpose was Christ's glory for all eternity. His purpose was for Christ's highest and best use. Not for his comfort, even though this is his son in whom he was well pleased. He had a higher aim, and he has a higher aim for you than you're probably comfortable with. None of us are really up for the cross all the way. But there is a higher purpose. It's there. And think about God saying no to Jesus. And then ask yourself if he's going to just say yes to you. This is his perfect, blameless son. And he denied him. And it's quite remarkable. Because if you go through scripture looking for requests that Christ makes on his own behalf, you're not going to find very many. He prays for lepers. He prays for the demon-possessed. He prays for his disciples. He feeds the 5,000. He's doing miracles. He's acting with the full authority of the Father, with complete power, creative power over all reality around him. And here, he gets a no. And that's remarkable. It's truly remarkable. Now, if we jump to John, the gospel that omits this omits this whole scene. We get right to the betrayal, or faster to the betrayal. John 17, we have a transcript of a prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. And that is where we see the highest, best use. And if we jump to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, where we're being taught about Christ assuming the high priesthood, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also said in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He learned obedience. It's another striking, I mean, that's, that's one of the earliest examples of preaching on these passages. So there's, there's a little sermon here in Hebrews on this gospel scene. And we're told in Hebrews that Christ learned obedience. And it's, it's another example of a, a thing we just kind of overlook. Think about Jesus needing to learn something. About Jesus in the garden learning a lesson, having his obedience perfected. He wasn't disobedient. His obedience was perfected 
in this more difficult, more brutal, more painful place where he had to obey. His obedience was perfected. And in that, he became qualified to be the high priest forevermore. God had a higher purpose for Christ. And he has a higher purpose for us. Every time we find ourselves praying that we can dodge some pain, some agony, some little bit of busyness, traffic in Moscow, we are petty enough people that it's possible to get frustrated with traffic in Moscow, Idaho. All that's necessary for that to happen is one squirrel or a cat. Or, you know, at least 200 yards of cars on 3rd Street. It's possible. We're that petty. And you could find yourself going to God saying, couldn't you make everyone go faster? And in that moment, in frustration, in the minivan, while somebody's pinching their sister and somebody else is throwing up and somebody else clearly filled their diaper, you can find yourself tempted to curse God and die. Because <laughs> that really is the only option. You can rejoice in the Lord always or you can curse God and die. Just don't go that way ever. Just don't. You're nowhere near Job's level. Not even with the diaper. Not even if you invested in cheap diapers that don't diaper anything. We live in a time where feelings are something we're extremely obsessed about. And we look at this scene with Christ and we see him feeling intensely. He's feeling incredibly intensely. Our feelings should be given to God to be confirmed by him or to be thrown down. By, by all means, tell God exactly what you feel, just like Christ does here. Follow that. Follow that model. Be raw and completely honest. If you are a 12-year-old girl with a major crush on some terrible math student, one row over, tell God, please God, make him love me dearly. And then add the same phrase that Christ does, but thy will be done. And I can tell you what his will is. <laughs> Pretty quickly. If you feel like disrespecting your parents, take it to God. Father, I feel like insulting my mom, but thy will be done. You'll, you'll notice that our deepest desires and feelings all kind of crumble to ash pretty rapidly when they are coming out of our flaws, out of our fallenness, out of our sin natures. But do not hesitate to tell God exactly how you feel. I feel like stealing this shotgun from Tri-State, but thy will be done. Cursing at this cop, but thy will be done. Like you'll, you'll notice that as soon as you go there, uh, a lot of your own inadequacies will be corrected. So tell God what you feel. Be raw and completely honest, no matter how foolish and moronic your feelings might be. And given that we're all human, I can tell you your feelings are pretty consistently foolish and moronic. No matter what, no matter how mature you might be, no matter where you might be in your spiritual walk, your feelings should never be given the steering wheel. Do not give your emotions the steering wheel as you start making decisions. Not even Christ's feelings in the garden were given control. Christ did not feel like going to the cross. 
He did not feel like going to the cross so much that he was weeping tears like blood, that an angel had to be sent, that he was begging his father to spare him from this. He did not want to go. And yet he said, thy will be done. He's asking for another way. He is crying out to God like Isaac on the mountain saying, please let there be a ram in the thicket. But the problem is he is the ram in the thicket. This is the prayer of the ram in the thicket, asking for there to be another way. And God says, no. This is your highest, best use. This is the path to glory. Given that Christ's feelings, Christ the God-man, I shouldn't even have to explain this, given that Christ's feelings in a distraught state, in a, in a place of difficulty, given that his feelings were not given control, why should yours ever be? Why would you ever give your emotions free reign when Christ in this situation didn't? His feelings submitted to the will of God. You should be saying, ought I to feel this way? Tell God how you feel and be saying, but thy will be done. I will feel how I ought to. I will feel biblically. I will feel the way you want me to. We live in an age where this is outrageous to even say. We're way past feelings being treated like a sacred cow, and our feelings now are treated, treated far more like sacred black holes, bending light itself, and even the truth. Don't you dare bring the truth to somebody who's in the middle of feeling something. Don't do that. I've been tempted to, to start just truth accounts on Instagram, you know, especially for the, the more adolescent female variety of our species, just to go through anywhere where there's ever been a fire emoji and then tell the truth. Just speak the truth and see how that's treated. It will be treated like absolute blasphemy. Our feelings have run amok. They're out of control. We submit to them even dumber. We don't just submit to our own. We submit to other people's. Somebody else is in the middle of an emotional fit. And so we, we give them a wide berth. We let them run the situation, the meeting, the Bible study, the discipleship group, whatever it might be. The person who's feeling the most suddenly is in charge and everybody else is tiptoeing. But Christ here feels more deeply, I think, than any of us ever have. And he submits his emotions to the will of the Father. And that is incredible. To move on from that unpleasantness to the next unpleasant lesson. Jesus died for you, but he didn't die for you. It's not why he did it. The atonement was not one of those terrible claw games at a grocery store where our Savior paid an enormous price only to discover that we were just cheap trash made of itchy recycled polyester suits. Jesus did not get ripped off. And you, on your own, are not his highest and best use. If we were all he'd been given, the ripoff would have been significant. The incarnate word, the word made flesh, the creative word by whom all things were made, without whom nothing was made that was made, 
he comes and he gives up his life. First off, he becomes a baby, totally vulnerable, having to have his pants changed, lugged around, running from genocidal soldiers, dealing with those disciples, just dealing with humanity, even being human. The humiliation then grows all the way to the point of crucifixion. But the humiliation starts when he takes on flesh. That should show us how humble he is. Why is he doing this? Is it because we are so worth it? We're the best. I mean, I think any perfect God-man would gladly lay down his life for me. You can see how this is a bad road to be on. And I've heard evangelicals talk this way when they're trying to, you know, land a conversion. They, they look at some one-toothed bum in Seattle and say, you're so special. You're so amazing that God sent his son to die for you. That's not what was going on. It's your lack of specialness that's kind of key here. We are the dry bones in Ezekiel's valley. We are not special. We are dead. We are decayed. We are broken. We are worthless on our own. It's important for us to realize that if saving us, if saving you, if saving me hadn't glorified the Father, Jesus would not have done it. The value is not in us, our dead fallen selves. The value is in the glory he brought the Father through bringing us in, through remaking us, through raising the dead, through distributing new hearts and the Holy Spirit and beginning to craft worshipers from less than the dust, less than the rocks, from fallen, broken, totally warped and disgusting, an entirely a race entirely populated with golems. Like billions and billions of golems. That's what he was working with. We make the level of difficulty higher. Saving us isn't, we're not the brass ring of, you know, the, the neatest toy in the claw game. That's not what we are. Saving us is harder. Fashioning faithful Imago Dei, faithful men and women, taking us and crafting us into worshipers acceptable to God the Father, that is insane. And it's not just a light switch either. He doesn't give you a new heart and suddenly you're without sin. He gives you a new heart and then you immediately sin. 30 minutes later. And you repent, and he forgives, and he continues working and continues crafting, and the Spirit works on you. The Son has bought you, and the Spirit is working on you, and he will take you all the way to the point of death, and then beyond, where you will be made completely new. If it was just about getting worshipers for the Father, he could have done that from rocks. We're told that. Sons of Abraham could have come from the rocks. He could have just gotten dust again and done Adam all over again. A hard reset would have been easier. And when Jesus is saying, is there any other way? Like, well, if the only goal is worshipers, yeah, there's a lot of other ways. But that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was, as we read in John 17, Christ says, glorify me so that I might glorify you. Christ is here for the Father's 
glory. Saving us glorifies the Father because of how ridiculous we are. Making us true worshipers, bringing us into the full generosity and grace of the Father, the infinite Father, that is astounding. Standing in between him and us, stepping in as our king, making us his siblings, his brothers and sisters. There is glory indeed. So what we brought to the table was an impossible level of difficulty and a true manifestation of Christ's humility and of his willingness to buy us because it was his father's will. It was his father's plan. And he wanted to glorify the father. If that's not enough, we can move on to fatherhood. Because this, this passage, this scene tells us a lot there. Now, as a father and as parents, we can look at our kids and we can really, really wish that we can make their lives so happy, so comfortable. I wish that you could eat cinnamon rolls every day and never get fat. And somehow have good grades and great SAT scores and scholarships and then a great nine-to-five job with retirement and health benefits. And you can just ease your way towards death without any disruption. We would like our children's lives to be like roads in Kansas. Just dwindling into the horizon where it looks like they're going nowhere. But it was flat and easy. That's not how our Father in Heaven is. Fatherhood is not protectionism because fatherhood as manifested in our Father in Heaven is not protectionism. He gave you a whole bunch of nerve endings and makes you feel things. Lots of them aren't pleasant. Fatherhood is preparation. Fatherhood is sending. And what is that preparation for? For your highest and best use. What is your highest and best use? Glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Father, it is protectionism. Father, it is preparation. Fatherhood is sending. Jesus came to this earth, had a brutal life, and died in his early 30s. And he lived the best life ever lived. The Father, our Father in heaven, didn't fail by not having equipped his son for a long life, for comfort. It's not what it's about. Christ came and he changed the world. What we should want for our children is that they would do miniature versions of that, that they would be spent changing the world around them. There's a whole bunch to say there, and I I talked about that at length at Grace Agenda. I'm not going to get all distracted there, but there's a lot there, and this passage especially shows that to us. God the Father is so generous. He's pouring out his blessings on us all the time. He's was preparing his own son for glory eternal, and his son asked him for something, and he said, no, we're doing this the hard way. This is happening the harder way. This passage also tells us something about freedom versus predestination. In American evangelicalism, it's commonly assumed that predestination and free will are at odds. But we don't need to go anywhere else other than this to see that that's not the case. Just because a thing is foreordained, just because a thing is predestined, does not mean that the character in that scene is not a free 
agent. Christ went to the cross freely. He went to the cross of his own free will, submitted to the will of the Father, voluntarily. He submitted his will voluntarily to the will of the Father. And that was one of the most, if not the most, prophesied, foretold, destined thing ever. Isaiah, all the way back to Genesis, we have everything, all these blinking lights pointing at this moment, this hinge of history, and Christ is in the garden acting freely. And yet, just a chapter before the passage in John that I read, he's chiding the disciples for not knowing this is a done deal. Don't you know this is done? Don't you believe yet? And then slightly later, he's saying, God, please, isn't there any other way? He's acting freely while also fully aware that this is predestined. The same is true of us. The two don't necessarily clash. If Christ was free in the garden and he was free in the garden and he was free when he stood in front of Pontius Pilate and he was free on the cross when he could have come on down, when he could have unmade the world around him and every one of those soldiers, he was free. And yet he submitted his will freely to the will of the Father. Through this entire scene, we should be looking at someone that we want to imitate. We should want to be more like Christ. What does this mean for us? This means that we should face our trials, our sufferings, our feelings, and especially those petty trials, those things where we just excuse ourselves because, you know, I got a splinter and it was under my fingernail. So, I mean, I think the curse, God, and die option was on the table. The petty things. It's one thing to trust God with a brain tumor or a miscarriage or a death in the family or a horrible illness because, you know, it's big and obvious. But when all those kids are yelling in the minivan, when all those kids are stressed out and hungry and won't stop, those are the moments when it's easy to lose the bubble, as we would say in our family. We should face our trials, our big ones and our small ones, the petty ones and the massive ones, in the same way that Christ did. Give them all to your true Father, the one Father that Christ leads us into and restores us into fellowship with. And once you've given them to God, submit to what he chooses to do with them. Know that your highest and best use is his glory and joy in his glory. Don't look for your own comfort. When those things come to you, think, what could I do here that would glorify God most? And that's how we should approach them. And we can, by all means, ask him to show us another way, but at the same time, offer to do it his way. Labor to live through your trials, through all the petty hassles, through your days of exhaustion and fatigue and stress and financial misgivings, in whatever way will bring your Father in heaven the most glory, knowing that that route is never painless. We tend to say, God, glorify me with nine figures so that I could glorify you with an amazing tithe. But when Christ said, glorify your son so that he might glorify you, God said, okay. He said yes to that one. And that path looks like the cross Ask God to show you the route that will glorify him the most. 
Knowing that route is never, never painless, not even for the most perfect man who ever walked this earth. But on the other side, there is Easter, and there is joy eternal, which will dwarf any mere hours of pain, days of pain, weeks of pain, even a lifetime of pain. The joy eternal will dwarf it. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice, for his blood, for the forgiveness we have through that sacrifice. There's a great deal of rich theology in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And one of the more wonderful parts is when God commanded Moses to make the uniform of the high priest, which included a breastplate, which was fashioned with 12 stones, 12 different kinds of precious stone, including a sapphire, a, di a diamond, a jasper, a topaz, and others. You see this in Exodus 28, 21. But not only that, God instructed Moses to have the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on the precious stones, one tribe on each stone. This is already an indication of something glorious. God considers his people precious and valuable. In fact, this is what God had said when Israel first showed up at Mount Sinai. You shall be to me a peculiar treasure above all people. And this is symbolized in engraving the names of the families of Israel on precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest. But it doesn't stop there. The whole point of having the names engraved on the stones on the breastplate of the high priest is so that the high priest can wear the breastplate with the names of the tribes of Israel into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. Exodus 28, 29. In fact, the text says that God wants the priest to bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart whenever he goes into the holy place. And all of this is fulfilled in Christ, who is our new high priest. Christ stands in heaven, ever interceding for us. But the thing to catch is that Jesus does not merely save sinners from their sin. He does not merely bring us out of the dungeons that we have created for ourselves. But Christ pays our debts, brings us home, and then in his infinite grace determines to wear us as his glory armor. In heaven, Jesus stands before God continually, and our names are engraved on his heart. And this is why you are most welcome here. You did not come here on your own. Your name was engraved on his heart on the cross. And so you were carried all the way in. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. It's such a comfort to know that God knows what he's doing. We don't know what we're doing, and we don't know necessarily what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing. That's good news. It's comforting news. And so the charge to you is pray the thing that Nate just suggested you, you pray. Ask God to do whatever it takes to make you into whatever he wants you to be. Surrender it all and say, it's all in your hands. You do whatever it takes so that I would be to your glory and your praise because he is worthy of that and he knows what he's doing. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit be upon you and remain with you forever. And amen.